Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Parenthood Podcast. Because we love them so much, it is only natural that we as parents feel the need to protect our children from pain and fear. And it's because of this that one of the hardest things for parents to talk about to their children is death. The problem is not talking about death isn't going to make it go away. We can't protect our children from this harsh reality by not addressing it. Unfortunately, death will affect all of us in some way or another. And when it does, we need to think about how we talk about it with our children. Many parents think children don't know when someone is ill or dying or when we're really sad, but they tend to overhear things and they're much more sensitive to their environment than we think. So with me today, I've got Julia Samuel, a psychotherapist who has spent her career supporting families in the narrative of death and grief. She's worked in hospitals and is the founder patron of the charity Child Bereavement UK. Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's not an easy conversation, but it's a really important one, isn't it? It is. I'm very um, touched that you've asked me to be here. And I hope people get something from this so that they can have the confidence to have these very difficult conversations. And it really starts, you know, before grief necessarily affects us. It's really important to talk to children about the concept of death, isn't it? I think it is because children um, respond to the truth and if we support them to tell them about these difficult things before they happen, they don't make it up. What children make up is much more frightening than the truth because they have a kind of magical thinking. So if they see a dead squirrel in the road um, or that you have a pet that's died, that's a very good first learning about death that it's um, irreversible, that the, the animal is, is dead and that means he's never going to feel anything or think anything or breathe again. One of the ways we talk about um, a dead body is the, the body might look like it's asleep, but it's not asleep. The body doesn't work anymore because the, the animal or the person has died. And it's important not to say, to use the word sleeping, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people do say, you know, the dog has gone to sleep or grandpa has gone to sleep, but that can make them quite fearful about going to sleep, children themselves. I think all the metaphors, like they've gone to a better place, they've gone to heaven, we've lost them, are confusing for children because children have magical thinking and heaven can be the hamburger joint down the road or they lose things every day but they find them again. So I think it's important to use very concrete terms like death and then whatever your belief system is, you can say that you believe grandpa is in heaven if that's what you believe but they need that first piece of concrete information that the person has died and if you don't believe that grandpa's gone to heaven I mean I was talking to someone the other day who said you know I totally told the whole catholic story even though I don't really believe that but I felt that was an easier story for me to tell my five-year-old can you be brutally honest with them or is it better to sugarcoat it a little bit even if that's not your belief system I think I don't know about sugarcoating it I think I mean one of the 
kind of uh, important things for children is that having having a belief can give you hope and certainly research shows those that have faith do fare better because there's this hope that you're going to see them again in 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 another life in in heaven um but if you can't be a consistent trustworthy parent so if on the one hand you're telling your children that you're a catholic and this is the story you believe but then they see from what they hear from other conversations that that isn't consistent with what you really think that's confusing for them so if you start telling that story you have to be consistent with that story because the most important thing is for children to be able to trust their parents that they're being told the truth and that they're honest so that they can rely on them because I remember with my children there was definitely a stage where they were quite fascinated with death there were a lot of questions about death there was a lot of conversation they wanted to talk about it quite a lot where does that stem from is that a natural occurrence in in adolescence in, in childhood I think it's a natural occurrence for everybody but we have so many kind of barriers to letting ourselves be curious because we're frightened of it and we kind of think if I think about it, if I talk about death, it might make it happen. It might hasten my own death. So I'm not going to talk about it. But children, if they have been brought up not to be frightened of it, kind of can poke with a stick at this dead animal um, or be curious about their grandparent that's died. And so that it's, it's very healthy not to imbue with them with our own fears. And how do you have that conversation? Do you feel that it is a conversation that needs to be had and so it should be initiated by the parent? Or do you wait until your child, child asks about death? I think it's both. So I think you can use nature and autumn or seeing a dead animal as a teaching opportunity that you can talk about death. And I think the, the thing is to ask the children what they understand. So it's much more about listening and being curious together than kind of pointing them in a direction and having a sort of place that you aim to get to. But in a way, the more you normalise death, which will impact all of us, whatever we kind of think, then the more supported they are to manage it when it happens. Yeah. It's what you don't know that scares you. Yeah. And and like you said, you know, children will very often dream up something much more scary if they're not managed in, in their emotions, presumably. Yes. And so, I mean, also, it's like our language, like using the dead word, but also being careful. So often people talk about the body. And I had a, a nine-year-old who was bedwetting because when people, his parents had talked to him about the body of their grandparent, they thought he didn't have a head because children are very literal. So again, sometimes, I mean, I certainly think it's helpful to see the person when they've died um, so that you have that reality that you can't not know when you've seen that what death looks like. Mm. Um, and the biggest task of mourning for children and adults is finding a way to live with the reality of the death and if you have an image that represents that, that supports you in that process. Yeah. I mean, we will all be touched by grief at some point in our lives. Our children will be as well. And I believe that it's important for us to prepare our children for that and to signal to them that we're happy to talk about our emotions. Um, I mean, there, there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, very 
lucky children living in the first world may well be hit by grief it might not be direct it might be a, a, a grandparent especially as our parents age also the loss of, of a very dear pet but even sort of slightly further removed things you know recently we had the the Grenfell Tower tragedy that happened very close to where I live um, and that that was you know another way to see a community grieving and, and the loss of people that live very very close to you um, how 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 do you have that conversation when it is actually not an abstract idea it might happen and it will affect you but actually someone you know and love is dying or is dead how do you have that conversation with with children and and how do you make sure that what they're worrying about is being conveyed to you how do you make sure they're being open enough with you you know, it's an, a long-term conversation if somebody's dying, so you don't have to do everything at once. So I'd start with um, Grandpa is ill. You may have noticed that he's not walking so well, so say signs that show that he's ill. And at the moment, we hope the doctors are going to make him better, but we don't know for sure. And then ask the child what what does that bring up for you? My big question when I'm working with children is, what are your worries? What's on top? And answer the worries as truthfully and honestly as you can. And then over time, again, ask them to notice, you know, the grandpa now isn't, he was walking, but he's not able to walk anymore. The doctors have told us that they can stop him suffering, they can stop him being in pain, but they can't make him better. That means that we know that he is going to die. And I would say it as straightforwardly as that. And one of the things that like you talk about protecting our children is that we often don't want them to be sad. So the minute they start crying, we say, no, no, don't be sad. It's going to be OK. I mean, it's going to be fine. Whereas actually we need to let them be sad and then let them naturally recover. So one of the metaphors we think about with um, children who are pre-bereaved or bereaved is jumping in and out of puddles. So they can jump in the puddle and be very, very sad. And then in their own time, they'll naturally jump out of it and go and play football or play with a friend or roar with laughter. And we need to let them have their own kind of process of jumping in and out of those puddles that we support them to be the children that they are. So we don't try and dig the sadness out of them, but we also don't block the sadness from allowing them to process what is a, a difficult thing. And that process is very important, isn't it? I mean, grieving as a, as a physiological process is really important. We, it's not a good thing to not embrace those emotions, to ignore them, to try and turn them away. Why is that process so important for us as humans? I think, I mean, I think particularly in the 21st century, we sort of all want the um, super fast app that gets us through this and give me the 10 top tips that will get me out the other side. And the thing with grief is, as you said, it has a natural momentum and process of its own. And the agent of change of grief is pain. Pain is the thing that forces you to face the reality that you don't want to be true. Because when everything's well and happy, we kind of feel everything's well and happy, but then we get this sort of discomfort in our body if it's a small thing where we know something's not quite right. If it's a very big thing with grief, when, you, when somebody has died, 
we can only take so much pain at a time. So we can't let us know the full, ourselves know the full reality all at once. So our systems are amazing systems that incrementally over time, by allowing ourselves to feel the pain, we do psychologically adjust to this new reality that we don't want. But we have to support ourselves to feel the pain and support ourselves to be okay. So one of the things I often think about is with adults is, in, in fact, adults often feel childlike. So in a way, we need to let adults jump in and out of puddles too and that they model for children how to grieve. So if children see their parents or the adults around them being sad, being angry, being upset, and then they get on with life and cook dinner and give them a bath and read stories, they learn by observing that that being sad doesn't kill you and you can get on with living, that you can allow both. That is such an interesting concept that we model grief. You know, we talk about this quite a lot on the podcast about modeling different um, issues. But, you know, I felt when, when after Willem died, I felt that I did need to embrace those tears and have a really big sobbing moment. And then I felt so much better. And it's so interesting that they are constantly looking to us to see what behavior is okay and, and what might make them feel better. And so you would, may well have wanted to protect your children from seeing you very upset because you'd think that would frighten them. And it may upset them and they may come and, come and have sat on your lap and said, Mummy, don't be sad, and kind of hugged you. But A, that would have given them the sense of agency that they could help you, which is a very nice thing for a child. But also they could see that you could survive it. And grief is like the weather. It comes and hits you like a storm. And we each have our own kind of weather pattern so some people don't cry for days and days and days and then have this huge kind of thunderbolt burst other people need to cry every few hours or or some people don't cry hardly at all but they're ragingly furious so there isn't a right or wrong way to grieve but the the important thing is finding a way of expressing it and kind of recognizing that what's going on internally needs to find a way of being expressed which then forces you to incrementally adjust to the reality so you know often I talk about that you may you may doing it do it by running you may do it by cooking if it's your mum that's died her favorite recipe and kind of weeping and laughing and remembering while you cook it may be by gardening it may be by journaling it may be by going to church and lighting a candle. It may be by talking to a friend or therapist. So there are, and it may be all of those things that you might want to do a soup of different things. Um, men and women tend to be different. So women tend to want to feel the pain to emote and grieve and express it. Men tend to want to be restorative, to get on, to have hope. If they have a baby that's died, they're the ones that tend to first want to think about having another baby or kind of being okay. And so when I work with couples, I often kind of acknowledge that they're wired that way and that, you know, he isn't being a selfish bastard and she isn't being a wet rag, but they can help each other do a bit of the other. So he can help her have hope for the future and maybe go for a walk or go to a movie or have a break from the pain. And she can help him do some of the expressing of the grief 
by maybe writing something in the memory book or talking about the person that's died. Um, and again, that models to the children that you're, you're doing both. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And how is it important in the grieving process to include children in funerals, in that sort of more formal inviting the outside in is it something that is better that they're shielded from or is it better just to allow them to come to everything and see everything I mean even I mean you talked earlier about you know seeing a dead body I mean I would have thought that would be pretty traumatic well certainly I would have thought before I'd seen a dead body that that would be very traumatic but what, is there a, a do and don't way or is it as simple as that I mean when I talk to families when someone has died my kind of starting position is that whatever I tell you, you know yourselves best. And I have to respect that this will go into your way of being as a family, what you believe and what you think is best for you. So, and that I really trust in. Certainly what all the research and evidence and my experience shows is that children need to be included. They want agency, they need memories, they want to be part of the process and often by hiving them off to go and be with the aunt or the best friend and not including them in the funeral. They don't know what's happened on the day but then four or five years later they learn that they were not included and then they feel excluded like what they felt or their part of it doesn't matter and didn't matter. And also it means they don't have these markers of rituals and memory that help them face the reality of the death. So the less content they have in their minds, if you like, to know that this has really happened, the more kind of crazy-making it is. And that's when their magical thinking can do them real harm. 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved grief. And if you look at the stats, that's much higher for bereaved children. So bereaved children are very high in the addiction, prison, mental ill health population because they haven't been supported and included at the time. 
I mean, I've said, I just want to say one more thing. The, the key thing to remember is that what children don't know they make up and what they make up is much more frightening than the truth. So however difficult the truth is, whether it's someone died by suicide, whether it's going to the hospital, whether it's seeing the, the dead body, if they're given preparation, so if you tell them what's going to happen... so. Going to a funeral, for instance, I would encourage the whole family to go, if it's in a church or um, in, a, in a funeral, in a cemetery, I would encourage the whole family to go the day before, to walk around, to tell them what's going to happen, where they're going to sit. Because if you think anything frightening in your life, the more preparation you have, then your system is ready to take it on. It's the sort of shock of the unknown that scares us. And of course, as parents, you know, as, as adults, we've all been to funerals before. And so we understand the concept of a funeral of a six-year-old or an eight-year-old who's never been to a funeral, but has read, you know, books about, you know, where death is, has, has been an issue might be thinking about something that's much, much, much more scary than the reality. And they'll ask difficult questions that we don't like answering that we as adults don't always have a clear answer for, like what happens to the body? Why is the body in a wooden box? Where have they gone? Why have they died? And, you know, you'll be asking, the adult will be asking the same questions. And I think the, the truth is you have to say what you believe and w as much as you know for yourself, whatever that is. But again, by hiding it and um, kind of covering it over with a with a metaphor is um, unhelpful. And talking is obviously very, very important, I think, for obviously bereaved parents, um, because also talking to someone professional can help you with that conversation with your children. Um, where how important is that? And where do you find that support, that um, counselling that's so often so helpful for people, parents who are trying to parent as well as, you know, deal with their grief at the same time? I mean, I, I think it is, I, I think what helps most, the sort of predictor of good outcomes is the love and connection to others is the people, is your friends, your family, and it might well be professional organisations that can support you. Um, so I think it's both. I think where Child Bereavement UK and me, people like me, help is that we have the confidence about what is helpful because we've seen it many times over. So we can let you explore and listen to you about what your worries are, what your thinking is, and then collaborate together to come to decisions about what's best for you. And when you're grieving, it feels like you've been thrown into an alien planet that you don't know yourself, nothing feels familiar, you feel very scared. So having basic guidelines from a professional and from an organisation, like on our website we have masses and masses of information sheets that people can just download that are very straightforward and simple and it's like you do need those basic sort of headings to help you kind of take one step in front of the other how do you find that children express grief do you think it's different to adults i think like i said i think often adults are like children um It'd be very individual. So each of us has our kind of natural mechanism of what comes into action when we're in duress. 
So some people will be incredibly sad and never stop crying. Some people would be very frozen. Some people would be in between. And that's what they'll have learned from their family system. Um, I think what children, I think children often, they feel a lot bodily. So it can feel like a tummy ache or a headache. Um, and they'll rub their tummy. And so I get them to talk about if that tummy could speak, what would it say? Or it, it's or maybe not words. It can be through painting or plasticine or their Lego or through puppets. So they can find a way of accessing what's going on in this kind of hurly-burly inside and some find some way of getting it out, whether that's... It's normally creatively. They often don't have the sort of psychological insight to be able to say, I feel a bit scared and I feel a bit angry and I feel a bit exhausted and I feel um, upset and I feel cross that this has happened, you know, because the, there are so many competing feelings in our system. They just feel it as a kind of tight yuck, you know, that they're not feeling happy. Um, and so finding ways of letting that out. Because uh, as, as therapy is sometimes conducted through play, isn't it, for children? Nearly always through play. Mm. So we have lots of resources on our website. We have books. Like we've got a love one book, um, which there's a an image of a, a child with a thermometer. And it said, so you ask the child to say where they are. So the, the highest is very, very sad. That I'd only feel sad. And then there's another one, which is I feel a little bit sad. Um, but I also feel a little bit happy. So that you can help them find ways of describing what's going on. We all know that there are ways to have good conversations and there are ways to have bad conversations and communicating with your child, especially when they're grieving, is probably never more important. How, what, what can we do to have a good and honest conversation? Because sometimes you do want to talk about something with your children, but they're just a closed book. They will not share what they're feeling with you. And that's so difficult. Do you have any tips in terms of how to have a really constructive conversation with a, with a child? I think... First of all, if a child feels that you're trying to get something out of them, like you're trying to dig into them and get what they're feeling. So I often, I mean, everyone listening to this will know it for themselves, often in the car when you're not eyeballing them. I mean, this isn't about a death conversation, but difficult conversations you can have about what's going on. It can be when you're not looking at them. So in the car, as a family, when I work with family systems, I often say walk and talk because when if you have a death in the family whether it's a grandparent or a sibling for the child if you think of a family as a mobile above a, a child's cot when a piece of the mobile has been cut away the whole family system is disorganized and tilted and the whole thing feels a bit kind of on one side and the thing that helps you recalibrate that system is is communication and having so families that have open communication trustworthy communication are the families that do best but that means allowing everybody in the family to have their own particular way of grieving so in a family of children you may have a teenager that adored their grandmother but is not going to feel it right now and goes clubbing and drinking and partying you may have 
um, an, another child who is sort of two years younger, who's furious with the partier, and she's staying at home and kind of really mulling over her grief and ruminating and making all sorts of things to represent her grandmother. And those two could have a standoff that each other is, you know, doing it too much or doing it too little. So it's allowing everyone to be themselves, recognise that we um, need to do that. And I think the thing of walking and talking is, again, you're not eyeballing each other. And as your system is moving, um, something shifts physically and psychologically at the same time. We talk about mind-body. Grief is embodied. We hold it in our body. So if I was a, a, a mum or dad and I was going to have a difficult conversation, I would start it by giving a kind of headline. I think it's really important that we talk about grandpa's death or we talk about the fact that grandpa's dying or we talk about my baby, the baby, your baby brother that's died. And the parents start by telling, so you model it. So the father then may say, yeah, I feel really sad about him dying and it means I'm not really concentrating at work. And the mum says, you know, tell me more or whatever. And then the children learn by looking at the parents how they're talking and then they'll chip in. But if you say to a child, what are you feeling? They'll do the equivalent of a V sign. It's like they wouldn't know that language. But if you demonstrate it to them, um, they do. So in my family, when <laughs> obviously I'm a therapist and I have two therapist daughters now, so that I've got four children. And having a walk for us is very rarely a neutral thing. So having a walk is like, I need to talk about something serious. Um, and when we're on holidays, the only time we're all together, we take it in turns to have double two of us walking and talking, or three of us, or all of us together. And we all know, we had one miserable holiday where lots of my children were really unhappy for different reasons, and we spent the entire holiday marching up and down the beach, sobbing and stamping and crying, and I just thought we were the most miserable family on earth. But actually everyone went home feeling quite a lot better. And from the other perspective, I think society finds it quite difficult to deal with grief as a whole, and it's not necessarily happened to you. I mean, I've, I found that people reacted to, you know, when, when my baby died in a very, very different way. Some people were fantastic at writing to me and supporting me and doing things that I didn't realize I needed doing, but actually really helped. And some people didn't do anything, which was sort of the most hurtful. What do you think as a sort of group of people who do care. And I, I do defy, you know, anyone saw my situation and thought, oh, I just, I don't really care. Everyone cared. It was just about how they, how they vocalised that. Um, what do you think we can do for families that are grieving, that, you know, you want to do something that's helpful or not? You don't want it to be too in your face, but at the same time, you want them to know that you care. I think the key thing is recognising that you, you don't need to fix it. And I think once you recognise that this isn't something that can be fixed, that the best you can do is acknowledge it, say I'm sorry, and that is enough. I think often we think we need to have this kind of some magical, brilliant philosophy or answer that's going to make it better. And that isn't in any of our gift. This, with your case, Willem had died. No one could make this better. And by telling you that you will be all right or that you may have another child or not saying anything at all 
was going to is going to do much more harm. So I think those that don't speak are frightened of saying something because they're frightened of saying something wrong. Um, and all they have to say is, I'm sorry. So I think it's much more straightforward than people think. And actually, in my book, I did a whole section on how friends and family can help. And it's my favourite section. And I, there's a section on, it's not about you. And I think if you put that first as the friend, so don't turn up when um, it suits you as the bereaved parent. So in the book, there's an example of a, a woman whose mother had died, and she said to them, um, could they come in the afternoon when she was sitting shiver because she was Jewish? And they said, no, actually, we can't come then. We want to come in the morning. And so they wanted to be a friend and do their thing, having ticked them off the list. But actually, she was exhausted. She wasn't sleeping. She didn't want to see them in the morning. And she wanted to see them in the afternoon. <laughs> so, you know, I think often people want to kind of do their duty. And really, it's about listening and meeting the needs of this particular person and putting your own needs to, a side, to one side. And many friendships have been broken on the altar of a bereavement. And many friendships have been made on the altar of a bereavement because we never quite know how people are going to react. And it's normally when they don't react or they cross the other side of the street or they don't do the things you need is because they're frightened. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoyed you writing in the book was that sometimes swearing is the mm. right vocabulary because someone's situation is so awful that if you just swear, <laughs> that, that can sort of almost it get does to it. the grittiness of how bloody awful it is. Yeah. And there aren't, there is, it, grief isn't polite, it's not tidy, it's messy and it's um, kind of fundamental and often just swearing and saying those words gets both the rage and the powerlessness and the ah uh, out of your system, um, which is kind of releasing. Um, I think the other thing that happens with friends is, I've heard it so many times and I actually can't believe it, but anyway that they think they don't want to say anything because they don't want to upset you. And it's as if they think they're going to be reminding you of the fact that this person has died. When, you know, 99.9% .9 of your whole being, certainly in the first months and, you know, certainly a year, is preoccupied with it, they can never upset you. You're upset already. Um, and that's one of the misconceptions that I think would be useful to get across. I think one of the pieces I really like in your book too is there's a sort of how to write a letter, what to think about when you're writing a letter because I definitely have been in a situation whereas I want to put something down on paper but I didn't know the person that well. I just want to reach out to the person that's grieving to say, I'm sorry and I'm thinking of you but how, how, what do you say? How do you fill a card? And actually that, that piece is sort of really good just even if you didn't know the person very well just thinking about them in a, in a happy time and, and that is often a real treat for someone who is really missing that person. So I, I, I do think it's heartfelt, honest letters. Avoid cliches, like they had a good innings or, you know, they're at peace now because, you know, that may be right for this particular person, but they may not want them to be at peace. They may want them to still to be alive, even if it means they're suffering um, or they're in a better place. I mean, that really doesn't work. So I think... Yes, saying even if you didn't know, say it's the parents that died, remembering stories that your friend has told about your parents or acknowledging how important they were to them and how much they loved them and um, you can really imagine that how difficult it is for them. It's the acknowledgement. The, the sort of key thing is love, 
and connection. So finding words to say love and connection. And it doesn't have to be 15 pages of wise prose. It's heartfelt kindness and the honesty of your friendship that people want. And also the understanding that everyone thinks a lot about grieving people in the first month, but that year is actually a big year, isn't it? And the fact that very often, you know, month one, you'll sort of feel like you're coping, but actually month five, you feel like you're not at all. And that's also when you need people to reach out to you. So even just a text to say, I'm thinking of you and, and I'm hoping that you're okay. Because often that um, frozenness, the, the sort of natural protection in our systems really becomes to kind of decrease at about three months. Um, so the, the pain kicks in, you know, it depends on the circumstances of the death, but the pain kicks in just as everybody's going back to their life and not being in touch with you anymore at about three or four months. And so that first year, the first of doing everything, the first birthday, the first Christmas, the first Easter, the first your birthday, all those normal happy days become very significant, complicated days when you're grieving. And as a kind of society, we like um, being able to kind of structure and tidy away someone's grief. You know, they've, you know, whether it's three months, they've done the first year. If it's a very complex grief, it can take years. And actually the first year, if it was, a, you know, so I'm seeing families from the Grenfell Tower like you talked about, this will take years. I mean, the inquiry is going to take three years until they have the full story and all the kind of content of that. They can't really even begin to deal with their own grief because they're being derailed by all the questions and the the sort of complexity of it. So we can never kind of judge when it's over. One of the differences between your and my parents' generation, although you're a lot younger than me, and um, to us today is, you know, my parents' generation was very much forget and move on. Don't think about it, don't talk about it, and what you don't think or talk about isn't going to harm you. And what we know now is that the relationship, the person has died... But the love and affection you feel for that person never dies. So in some ways, the love, the relationship continues. So it's never over. And one of the things that I kind of have understood, it's about learning to live with the loss and accommodating the loss. It's very different, the circumstances of the death. So if it's a life interrupted, um, and the death of the future that you expected, that is much more complicated than, you know, a a death of an older person who kind of has had a a full life. It is a very different process. Yeah, and I think probably people find that, you know, the life interrupted harder to deal with because actually, thanks to modern medicine, it is much rarer than it was, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, just as a stat, um, in 2005, there were 6,000 child deaths. In 1905, there were 600,000 child deaths, where the population was about, I don't know, about, I don't even know what it was, but 15 million maybe. So, you know, one in six children 100 years ago died. And so thanks to modern medicine, it is very rare. But it means that we don't have those Victorian rituals and external expressions the thing about grief is that it's invisible 
once you've had the funeral, it's completely invisible, and yet people kind of feel altered by it and transformed by it, but nobody can see. One of the things I often think we should have is a black ribbon that you can wear, like a red ribbon or a pink ribbon, so that you can show, you know, to be been a bit nicer to you on the tube or if you've left your wallet behind at Sainsbury's, you know, that people are a bit kind to you because you feel like you've lost a layer of skin or a limb and yet you look fine. And so there's this very weird internal-external discombobulation um, that... You know, the Victorians, because basically you got ill, you died. Um, and death, you know, you had the body at home. There were all the rituals of mourning, of wearing black clothes, purple clothes, grey clothes. You had a black ribbon on the door. All those external touchstones kind of allowed you to be treated with care. And we don't have that now. I mean, most offices expect you to get back to work sort of three weeks after the death. Um and to be back, certainly back, working absolutely fine after two months. I would have wanted to wear a black ribbon for a year. And I think that that's perfectly summed up. I would sort of cope in day-to-day life. But, you know, the moment someone was a bit mean to me on the road, I would burst into tears, which is just ridiculous. But it's like you just need that external signal. Be gentle, be kind. Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't have my normal robustness. You know, if you get a train that's cancelled, you find yourself hysterical on the platform or... You know, you, people, you're forgetful. Most of your being is preoccupied with this process beneath. So one of the metaphors for grieving is that it's like an iceberg. What you see on the top is the third, that bit that's pointing above the waterline. And two-thirds of what's going on is below the waterline. And that is this push and pull between being loss-oriented and grieving and being restoration-oriented and wanting to get on and survive and be okay and that you move between the two. And the paradox of grief is that we don't want to feel the pain, we don't want to do the loss work, but it's the things we do that avoid the pain that ultimately often do us harm. And the 21st century, you know, with busyness, with phone addiction, every kind of trigger to be disconnected, it makes it more complicated to really allow ourselves to feel the pain because it's so easy to kind of block it out. Mm. One of the things you sort of mentioned um, in relation to the fact that, you know, child loss is now so rare, which is amazing, it's great, it's nothing but a good thing, but I think when it happens to you, it makes you feel very isolated. It, you can often feel like the only person... You know, I certainly never knew anyone who'd had a stillbirth. I didn't know one person, which, and I wouldn't voice that on anyone. But at the same time, there's no club for the women that have dead babies or the parents that have dead babies, which is, I guess, one way that social media is brilliant because it does then help you connect to people that wouldn't necessarily be in your social circle who have experienced it. And talking to someone who is experiencing something similar is incredibly comforting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, as you say, I think if you have a child that dies, whether it's a stillbirth or an older child, um, you become a member of a club that nobody wants to be a member of. And as you say, the rarer it is, the more kind of discombobulated and odd that you feel. Um, and so these, you know, organisations like Stan, SANS, Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Society, the Miscarriage Association... Um, the, the sort of uh, death, depending on what the cause of death, Teenage Cancer Trust, all these death-specific organisations 
have natural support groups where you can connect and you can sort of see that what you're feeling is normal because you feel so abnormal. And I do think social media has a big part to play in that, in, you know, in Facebook and connecting, as you said, with people that you don't know. I think what's complicated about it is that it's still very unique. And what I've seen in some groups is that you can get kind of competitive mourning. So with a stillbirth, say, and this isn't a criticism at all, it's just what I notice, it's an observation. If someone has a stillbirth at nine months, um, they may feel that they had a greater loss than someone who had a, a baby loss at um, 16 weeks, they had a miscarriage. But actually the measure of the loss isn't the number of weeks, it's the emotional investment in the pregnancy. It's how much you expected and wanted from it. And what you're grieving for isn't the number of weeks, it's the future that you believed you were going to have. The moment you saw that blue line, you saw yourself as a family of three, say it's your first baby, and you're imagining the baby seat in the car and how you're going to relive your life and you know, organise your work. And that's your grieving for the future that you've been robbed of. And that's, you know, that it's an invisible, complicated process. Death is always going to be hard to talk about, as we've established. Sometimes, I mean, I was talking to a girl the other day and she had twins. She had twin-twin transfusion. So one baby was getting all the nutrients and the other baby didn't and the other baby died. And her daughter is now two. And she said to me, you know, when do I tell my daughter that she had a brother? because it's a difficult conversation to have. And, and I'd said, you know, my instinct is to sort of start telling her earlier on so it's not this big watershed of, of information. But what, what's your advice on that? I think that's right. I think it, it becomes normal that you had a... So, I mean, one of the... Steptoe, who was the IVF pioneer, who did Louise Brown and all the IVF, he was the surviving twin of a twin that died. And he said... The, the reason he thinks unconsciously that he went into this specialization was in some way he was always searching for his twin that died. Um, but that's a kind of aside. So what the, the difficulty for the parents is they're both grieving the loss of the baby that died and celebrating the life of the baby that survived. And they need to give themselves permission to do both. And often everyone around them is only doing the celebrating, thank goodness you've got her, and they deny the death of the baby. And I think as a family system, they need to hold both. that It is a loss, and it's a loss for the surviving twin. And I would be honest with them, as you said, so it's not this watershed moment where my innocence as a child was ripped from me when I was five, when I, told I, I was told I had a twin that died. I hope they have photographs of the twins together, um, because that we certainly encourage in hospitals so that the surviving twin has an image. Um, and over time, they can build a picture for that twin of their brother and what happened and the truth. So he would be an important part of that surviving twin's psychological self. There's a lone twin network too, by the way. Yeah. It, that sort of relationship we have with dead bodies. I mean, I remember when Willem died, Kiara, my sister, who's a GP, said, Marina, it's really important for you to hold him and meet him and have pictures taken with him. And it wasn't something I wanted to do at all. But I'm so relieved that I had someone that I trusted implicitly just give me this really good advice. 
it is it is really important is it and what's the science behind that because obviously i think a generation ago you know people would say no no don't don't see that don't don't torture yourself don't torment yourself with having to hold your dead baby but it's an important part of the adjustment isn't it it is an i mean from my experience it's an important part there was some research that came out about five or six years ago where some of the people who'd been interviewed um, said they regretted seeing and holding the baby. So, you know, there is always individual subjective experiences. But my, certainly my experience of 30 years of working with families where babies and children have died is that you love this dead baby as much as you love your live babies. And you want memories to go back to of parenting that baby, of holding them of dressing them, of spending time with them. And if you have no images of them and no expression for that, it's also crazy-making. So once I worked with a family where, um, while she was in labour, the baby died, and her husband insisted that she was anaesthetised and she had a caesarean. So she came in in labour and she left with a scar and no baby. And the work that we did was so complicated because... She had no cognitive memory to focus her grief on. So we need memories to find a way of accepting that reality. If there is no memory, it's madness because you know that something is terrible. You've got this scar and you're, not, you're holding space, but you have nothing to make sense of it for yourself. So the father in trying to protect her actually made it a much more complicated, difficult process. But there will be people listening who who say, I didn't hold my baby and I don't regret it and I didn't see them. And, you know, you can never quite predict. I mean, I think, you know, with regards to photos, you can choose not to look at those photos, yeah. but at least you have the opportunity if at some point you will, you do want to. And how you feel in those, you know, unfortunately, we've only got a limited amount of time to, to make those decisions while you still have a body. Um, but unless you give yourself the opportunity, then you, you never have... You know, and, and 10 years later, you might feel very differently. Well, your children might feel very differently about the memories. So, I mean, that's a, a really important point, is that there's this very limited window between the, the death, and this could be an adult or it could be a baby, and when you have the funeral. And to give yourself time to really be informed, make decisions, change your mind make another decision because you can never go back and put those decisions straight and regrets are the derailer of grieving all the what-ifs and so with you your instinct was I don't want to see him because I don't want to love him too much and if I hold him I'll never let him go and that would have been a feeling that you'd had but in the months afterwards you'd have castigated yourself like I didn't even hold him I was such a bad mother and the regrets of that in my mind are much way outweigh the, the difficulty of holding him um, and also you have psychologically adjusted and you know I also think the reality is never as bad as you think you know I'd never seen a dead body before I held my own dead baby I certainly never Which touched as bad one. as it can get isn't it yeah I mean but you know it isn't it I, I was sort of thinking it's going to be gruesome and horrible, but it's not. It's not. There's something weirdly magical and otherworldly about it. 
but a bit like the child who's never seen the dead body or has never had that conversation about death. You're often imagining something way worse than the truth. And you're left with this limitless imagination. You know, I've worked with um, adults whose children have died in car crashes or in terrible circumstances, and the police and the paramedics have said, no, no, don't go and see them because, you know, they, they, it'll disturb you and, you know, they've cut their face and they look very damaged. Well, telling them they've cut themselves, you know, that they're very cut, they're left with this kind of pulped image of their child. And actually, if they've seen them and they've held their hand, that calms them. So um, we can never protect ourselves really from the reality. I want to talk a little bit about your book, Grief Works, yeah. which um, I really enjoyed reading. Um, there are lots of sort of case studies about how different people deal with grief in different ways. And I think, I mean, it's fascinating. I find the work that you do very, very interesting. And also a little window on the extraordinary lives of some people and, you know, that hope and that resilience and, you know, the fact that they do boomerang back and emerge often stronger. Um, you must have encountered some extraordinary people over the your careers was that sort of behind wanting to to write the book I wrote the book really the engine for the book was anger because I was so I got so fed up years and years of people coming into my room and castigating themselves for not grieving right because they were so ignorant because it is still a taboo and we don't know how we're meant to feel they kind of felt that they were doing it wrong because they were still in a lot of pain six months or nine months later. So that was the energy to write it. What was amazing was my memory of all the work that I've done in, in these 30 years and how vivid, vividly I remembered those stories, which I thought I'd kind of, you know, had sunk to the bottom of the sea because I can barely remember my own name sometimes. <laughs> um, but in, in going back they kind of live on in me, all of these amazing people. And yes, I mean, people do have, given the right support, people have an incredible capacity to survive and get on. And it's a Darwinian kind of uh, part of our being that enables us to do that. But it needs to be supported and allowed to thrive. And paradoxically, that's by allowing people to grieve. Um, yeah, and I often sort of feel... I mean, the stories were different relationships. So it was when a parent died, a partner died, a sibling died, a child died, or facing your own death. And so I did three case studies um, for each section to show that there are kind of norms that run through everybody's experience, and there is a sort of universal experience, and yet that each one has very much unique and individual ways of being and and sort of um, experiences and I kind of feel that in my little room in W2 whether it was at St Mary's where I worked for 25 years or in my private practice I've kind of traveled the world you know I've worked with people from every country in the world from every faith from multi-different languages you know Mary's has I think something like 120 different languages spoken on any given day so um, it's certainly expanded me and I think I feel very lucky and grateful that I've found a job that I really like doing as odd as it is and you know I think it's one of those jobs that is reciprocal gifts I get given much more from my clients than I ever give them 
um, and seeing how they manage to navigate these incredibly complicated, difficult um, events that happen to them is, is an amazing thing to witness. Because the way that we deal with grief is very different than it was, uh, you know, two generations ago. Um, and this is presumably the reason why you wanted to you know, found uh, Child Bereavement UK. I was reading the autobiography of um, Deborah Mitford. Uh, she became the Duchess, Duchess of Devonshire. And she was explaining how she had, uh, I think her first child was very premature, born at 28 or 32 weeks. And she gave birth to him in the hospital. And she, the doctor came around. She said, well, what happened to my baby? And he said, well, you don't think it survived, do you? And that was the way the fact that her child hadn't survived mm. was was broadcast to her and this was what in 1950 maybe the way that you know the professionally we support grief is very different now isn't it yes i mean um jenny thomas is the founder of cbuk and i'm the founder patron and we were part of that change i mean we're going to be 25 years next year and again, so in hospitals, it was very much what you don't see isn't going to hurt you. And doctors were quite kind of patriarchal, mainly men. Um, and bodies, you know, babies beneath then, it was 28 weeks, were often um, put in hospital waste. There was no acknowledgement, there were no images, there was no time, there was no information, no choices. And that was just about babies dying, let alone children dying. So... But, you know, our understanding psychologically um, in the last 50 years has transformed our understanding of how we are as human beings and our understanding of grief and bereavement. And so you, you can't blame the, other, the older generations. They, were, they fought in the Second World War. They were brought up by survivors of the First World War. In many ways, they didn't have the luxury to mourn because they had an imperative just to get on and fight. We now have the psychological kind of capacity to allow ourselves to feel because we're not just surviving. Um, and, and that means that we've created systems that are much more sensitive and acknowledging and supportive. Um, and we know much we know much more. You know, Sigmund Freud, who's the kind of father of all talking treatments, he was the first person who talked about the work of grief, that grief is work and that it requires endurance. So it's something that we have always known, and it's in all the kind of great novels, you know, whether it's Trollope or Dickens. Um, but we understand more what supports us now than we, than we did before. Thank goodness. And there are still things that, you know, people have regrets because they maybe had an insensitive conversation. So it... It takes a lot of humanity to be able to talk to someone that's bereaved, to break the news if you're a doctor that their child is going to die or has died, or break the news to an adult that their parent is dying. And, you know, I think hospitals are, you know, they're under a siege of attrition. It's quite hard to keep your humanity when they're so busy. So, you know, I, I'm incredible. I love St. Mary's and... Um, I think the NHS is an incredible organisation, actually. 
Well, thank you, Julia. It's been so great chatting to you. Um, thanks. I think it's so important to have this conversation. And however, whatever the circumstances of our listeners, I know that this will be hugely helpful. Um, Child Bereavement UK, you can access a lot of information online, can't you? Yeah, www.childbereavement.org.uk. And on my website is www www.griefworks.co.uk and the book is available from all good bookshops and amazon and everything isn't it and on my website and in the book is my eight pillars of strength which is kind of pillars of systems that can support you to manage your grief and that you know has been immensely helpful to the thousands of people that have used it yeah yeah i highly recommend the book and not just because julia's here it's a really (laughs) really fantastic book thank you all so much for downloading another episode of the parenthood we hope you found this episode illuminating and helpful if you have enjoyed it please don't forget to subscribe rate and review us Um, but in the meantime from julia and me thank you for listening bye thank you very much bye